Okay, our scripture reading is Psalm 48, the psalm we have just sung. Psalm 48. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. And as soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold on them their anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We've thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth, Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Mount Zion, let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels. That you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. We'll also have a, a reading from Lord's Day 21, and in your, your hymn books, I believe that would be on page 880. If you wish to follow along, it will be the one question and answer on the church. Lord's Day 21, question 54. What do, you, what do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church? I believe that the Son of God, through his word and spirit, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. And of this community, I am and always will be a living member. All right. Congregation beloved of the Lord Jesus Christ, Psalm 48 is about uh, Jerusalem, and the church is the new Jerusalem. Galatians 4.26 tells us that the Jerusalem that is above is free, and it's the mother of us all. It's referring to the church. Hebrews 12.22, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. This is terminology used in the psalm. It's reflecting that. So the church of Jerusalem continues as the church of today. So the things of this psalm 
are of interest to us today. We can expand a little bit on this, how, how Jerusalem is like the church. The Lord is there. The Lord put his presence there, his glory filled the temple. And that presence was a loving presence because the temple, in the temple, were, uh, the, was the ministry of the means of grace. The way for people's sins to be forgiven was administered in the temple, in the presence of God. And this is true in the church today as well. The Lord has filled the church with his glory. The church has been entrusted with the means of grace. It's been entrusted to preach the gospel of salvation, forgiveness of sins by faith in Christ's death and resurrection. The church has been entrusted to confirm you in the faith with the sacraments. The Lord has put his name in the church, as he put it, on Jerusalem. He's promised to dwell in the church. The church is the dwelling place of God through the Spirit, Ephesians 2.22. It is God's temple. Well, if all this is true, and if it's uniquely true of the church, then the church is uniquely precious, isn't it? Without the church, where would God's presence be in this world? Where would his favor be? Without the church, where is the gospel in this world? The church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. And as Jerusalem had problems, the church can have problems, but it is the vehicle that God uses to administer his grace. She must be cared for, preserved, guided, and supported. Her ministry must continue with elders and deacons and ministers and all the church members willingly dedicating themselves to her service. Now Christ, in caring for his church, he will pursue all of those things. So this is an introduction to Jerusalem, the church, the holy city, the church, which is the holy city. And you find we can't speak much about the church without speaking about God who has established the church. His fingerprints are all over the church. And that's the way that this psalm flows too. It begins talking about Jerusalem and it moves into talking about God. So we're going to consider Psalm 48 under the theme of the city that God defends because it's primarily about God's defense of Jerusalem. First, we will look at God's city and then the city's God. And then thirdly, our response to that. So in verse one, we have a beginning. There's a backdrop here. God has stepped in. He's dramatically delivered the city. It could be that everyone's out on the streets. Everyone's happy. They're celebrating, celebration happening everywhere because of this marvelous victory God has done. And so there is this praise. Great is the Lord and worthy of praise. 
Well, how is the city described? It's the city of our God, a place chosen by God. And for that reason alone, it's a beautiful city. The mountain it sits on is a holy mountain in verse 1, holy by God's presence. But this mountain setting, you see how this passage goes into speaking, this city is a military city. Mount Zion, what was that? That was where the Jebusites had the city of Jebus. And they felt so secure in the stronghold that they mocked David. They said, David, you'll never get up here. And you could see why. It was a great height. And there were drop-offs. The Valley of Kidron on the one side, on the east. The Valley of Hinnom coming around on the south and on the west. Great drop-offs. Behind it, more mountains. Very difficult to get to. It's called Mount Zion. It's a natural fortress. And even the name Zion is thought that that means fortress. It's located in the far north of Judah. It's the ideal military situation. You can see why verse 2 says that it's beautiful in its elevation. The city has citadels. Verse 3 says these are fortresses. So the overall picture here is a military one. The city nestled up in the mountains at the north end of Judah, sitting up high, walls, fortresses, this nearly impenetrable fortress is the city of the great king. Now, there are some who have claimed to be the great king, Sennacherib, king of Assyria. He called himself the great king. But Jerusalem is the city of the true great king. No matter what another king tries, he can't do it unless he's allowed by this king because this is where true government is, government of all things. It's a true capital city. So others may make claims to their own jurisdictions, all their claims, they're nothing because they are all weaker. They are all pretenders. They're not at all like the God of Jerusalem. So for this reason, despite all the natural fortification that meets the eye when you look at Jerusalem, who is the defense? Verse 3. The Lord has made it known that he is the refuge. And we'll go into the details of that as we, um, as we get into the second point. But we do understand when God is the refuge... This is why the first characteristic you see of the city of God, of the church of God here, the city that God defends is rejoicing, singing in his honor. There's a reason this psalm begins, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. It wasn't that their city saved them. It was that their God had saved them. The Lord had shown himself to be their refuge. Now, sometimes we have doctrines and we say, well, these doctrines are doctrines. They're abstract. God is our refuge. It was very practical in Jerusalem. Men went out to war. Their wives and children stayed home. They wondered if they would come back. They wondered if their cities would be kept secure. When the Lord was their refuge, when they came back home, 
successful, there was relief, there was joy, there was celebration. It was not an abstract doctrine to them, and it should not be abstract to us either. When a threat was overcome by the mercy of God, there was a response of praise. Now that joy that was in the city, you could think, well, it's us versus them. And in a certain sense, it was. But the joy is not a partisan joy. That means it's not for a particular party alone. That's a joy that should be spreading. It should be inviting others also to participate. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. If you look at Psalm 96, that is a reason to go and tell God's glory to all nations and all peoples. And so also in verse 2, the city that God defends is the joy of all the earth. Well, obviously there were enemies who didn't really take a lot of joy in Jerusalem, especially if they were defeated. But the idea here is that the whole earth ought to be rejoicing in this city because there is a place where God has put his name. There is a place where the true God has come to live with men. The true God has taken residence in this holy city, and he's a wonderful God. So as we look at the city's defense, we're called by the psalm, let's look at all of these natural fortifications of Judah or the man-made fortification, but those walls that are there were not meant to seal off Jerusalem from the rest of the world. They were there to defend, but not to seal off. God's people were to live their lives faithfully in the presence of the nation so that the nations would look at their lives and say, what a wise and understanding God you have. Deuteronomy 4, verses 6 and 7. And when Solomon dedicated the temple in Jerusalem, in this holy city, this is what he prayed in 1 Kings 8. He wanted foreigners in. I'll read it in a second. He wanted foreigners in, anyone from anywhere with an interest in the Lord. He said, concerning a foreigner who's not of your people, Israel, who's come from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name, your strong hand, your outstretched arm. Hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all that the stranger calls to you, that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people, Israel. Solomon wanted God to have foreigners come in. He wanted God to answer their prayers, to be merciful to them. It was never God's purpose to seal off his people, even though they had walls. So why were those walls there? God's presence in Jerusalem was for a reason. The temple was there to administer God's grace to fallen mankind. It's to be available to all. And in order for it to be available for all, it had to be protected. It had to be defended. It could not be 
destroyed. And this is the heart of God. It's to lift fallen man out of his sin. And we know this is why he sent his son on the cross to make it happen. He has a great care for lost souls. God's defense of his city is to defend the ministry of his grace to all people who will humble themselves and come to him. And so today, the church is the ongoing Jerusalem. Is the Lord's purpose in saving sinners, his delight in saving sinners, is that evident to the world? Is the church the joy of the whole earth? Do you want it to be the joy of the whole earth? Or in zeal to preserve the church, do we sometimes forget its purpose and seal it off? Preservation is important, but the availability of the gospel is also important. The ministry of the forgiveness of sins is only found in the church's walls. Any hope for the world must come from here. This is the place where God forgives you over and over again, where he shows his mercy to you over and over again, wonderful victories that you can celebrate. Wouldn't you want to share that with all people? For every sinner that repents, there is great joy in heaven, around the throne of God, where the church is. That should be our joy too, that we join in that song, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, that this should constantly fill the church with the hope that it will be sung not only here, but that it will be sung everywhere. So this Old Testament picture of God delivering his people helps us understand God's protection of his ministry of grace benefits both the church and the world. Christ doesn't just defend and preserve his church. He's also gathering his church at the same time. It all is because of the gospel. Let us praise him for it because we enjoy it, let us follow his lead as well. So that's God's city. It's a fortress guarded against enemies by walls, by God himself, but it's full of praise into which the whole earth is called to, to join in, that it would be the joy of all the earth because salvation is available there only there. So God's city now leads us to think of the city's God. And this is what the following verses speak of. Verses 4, 5, 6, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. When you think of a bastion, a stronghold, a fortress, what do you think of? There's a location Thick walls, heavy walls, heavy doors, towers, ramparts, bulwarks, people on the walls, watchmen, archers, 
to repel the enemy when the enemy comes up to it. Because a refuge is stationary, isn't it? But what is here in verse 5? As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. In this case, the enemies only needed to see Jerusalem, to be set back, and to be in trouble. And this is not because of those walls. It's because of the Lord. And probably the situation here was the one during the time of King Jehoshaphat that you can find in Second Chronicles 20, if you want to read it later. Jerusalem was being threatened by the armies of Moab and Ammon and Edom, a combined, combined army from three countries. And they were threatening. They were on the march, making their way up. They were at the edge of the Dead Sea, and they were going to come up to Jerusalem. And Jehoshaphat got wind of, wind of it. So these kings assembled themselves, as verse 4 says. They were coming on together. And in the meantime, did Jehoshaphat trust in those bulwarks of Jerusalem? He sought the refuge. He sought the Lord. He led the congregation, his congregation, in a beautiful prayer of dependence on God. And he laid the whole thing out. He confessed, God is the great king. God, you've given us this land. You've allowed us to build this sanctuary here so that when we're in trouble, we can pray to the sanctuary and you will hear from heaven and you're going to help us when we're in trouble. And now we're in trouble. So we're doing that. We're praying to you. And there are these three countries. You brought us out of the land of Egypt and you told us, don't touch these three countries when you go through them. Now look what they're doing. They're combining. And they want to kick us out. Oh God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that's coming against us. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. God was his refuge. Now in response... God answered them. He sent a prophet. He said, you don't need to go fight, but you do need to go down to the enemy, stand still, and watch my salvation. So Jehoshaphat and his army, they went down to Tekoa, 15 kilometers away, with praises to the Lord. They were already singing. And that was all they had to do because the Lord took care of it. The enemy, they were all in a panic. They got confused they killed each other off. All Jehoshaphat's army found were dead bodies. These enemies experienced the power of Jerusalem's defenses. It wasn't her walls. It wasn't her citadels. It wasn't Mount Zion. It was the Lord who chose to live within those walls. Walls and fortifications, they don't reach out 15 kilometers to the enemy. It's the Lord. But why does God identify himself with the walls? It says he's, how's it worded here? God has made himself known in verse 3 as a fortress. It's because the Lord's action was defensive. 
See, there could be people who criticize the Lord. He must not love people very much. He went out and took care of his army. Is that what's happening? This army wanted to blow away the place that God had put his means of grace, the one hope of the whole world, the ministry of God's mercy to forgive sins. These armies wanted to wipe it off the face of the earth. That's where true love comes from, is from the ministry of God's mercy in his son. It was those enemies who did not love mankind. And the Lord defended his love for mankind by removing those enemies. His action was defensive. The Lord was not out to conquer nations by military might. He was out to defend the gospel. That is how the Lord would have the nation serve him, by submitting to the gospel. So Jehoshaphat's army, they didn't have to do anything but gather spoil, and they came back praising God, and this is the Lord. He can defend people. He can use ordinary means. He can use extraordinary means, as he did here. He does use ordinary means. Let's not misunderstand. He uses walls and fortresses and watchtowers and strongholds and soldiers. There's a reason that Nehemiah rebuilt the wall. It was because walls do something. They protect people. Okay? There are real ordinary means God uses, but God can also act beyond the power of these natural means. And where there was an extraordinary threat, the Lord in an extraordinary way, preserved his people. And we can also turn it around and say, even with those military advantages, when Israel turned away from the Lord, those military advantages didn't help them. So this is the power of the city's God. He can augment those walls he can nullify those walls. So why did God step in the way he did here? Well, he showed in the extraordinary opposition he can take care of it. Why did he do that? God's committed to defending his city. We have verse 8, these expressive terms, as we've heard, so we've seen in the city of the Lord of hosts and the city of our God, which God will establish forever. God can step in. It's the city of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, defensive armies, dedicated to defending his people. But why was he doing it? We've already spoken about the ministry of grace that took place in the walls, and that's part of the answer, but there's more to the answer as well, because Christ had not come yet, and he had to come from somewhere. The Lord needed to preserve his church and preserve the worship and ministry of his church to serve this other purpose, to bring the Redeemer into the world, to be the true sacrifice for sin. And of course, that had a purpose. It's so that you 
can be saved, and others like you can be saved. We come back. This is God's love for fallen people. And this is why in verse 9, what is on the minds of God's people when they're in the temple? His steadfast love, his loving kindness, his faithfulness. And probably they were thinking God has been faithful to us and God had been faithful to them. But looking back, we see that whenever God defended Israel, he was defending and preserving the way for Christ to come. And in doing that, he was preserving the way for you to come to God through Christ. So Christ gathers, defends, and preserves his church appointed to everlasting life from the beginning to the end of the world. This is what we confess, and this is what we see here. The scope of his care is majestic. Thousands of years ago, he already had the church of today in mind. The coming of Christ depended on his preservation of the church. The church today depended on the preservation of the church. It all hangs together in the Lord's purposes. And so as verse 10 says, your praise reaches to the ends of the earth because the church is going to the ends of the earth to present the gospel. The story is not as much about how the church loves and recovers sinners as it is about how the Lord loves and recovers sinners. Do you see the depth of Christ's love? His love for you, his love for so many more like you who also don't deserve his love. It reaches from the start of time to the end of the world. Seeing the mass of fallen men and seeing to it that those chosen to everlasting life would be saved. None would be lost. That's an amazing, humbling love, one that leads us to bow and to worship at the feet of the only one capable of that love. Now, I want to bring us back to verse 7 as well. Because we've seen the Lord at work defending his church in Jehoshaphat's army. But there's this strange verse here. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. Now, I ask you, how often has a ship sailed up a mountain to attack a city? Not often. Why is this here? It seems a little out of place. Well, when you look at Second Chronicles 20, the story of Jehoshaphat and those armies, God's deliverance, there's something out of place there too. Because immediately following that story, there's the story of Jehoshaphat making an alliance, entering into a joint venture with the wicked king Ahaziah of Israel. And you know what that venture was? It was making ships to, tail, to sail to Tarshish. The Lord had spoken to Jehoshaphat already when he allied himself with Ahab, Ahaziah's father, a supremely wicked king. And he'd been warned, why do you help the wicked? 
And now the Lord sent another prophet. He denounced him. He said, the Lord's going to break your ships. And the Lord did. Why is this in here? The Lord's right hand, says verse 10 in the second half, your right hand is filled with righteousness. The Lord is just. If the Lord defends the city from threats on the outside, wouldn't he also defend his city from threats on the inside? Why should the wicked be blocked at the walls or outside the walls and then given free access through the heart of Jehoshaphat? It shouldn't be. The Lord is just. The wicked works of those outside need to be broken. The wicked works of those inside also need to be broken. The purpose is to preserve the gospel. It cannot be destroyed or wiped out. And this is not to the saints' destruction. This wasn't to Jehoshaphat's destruction that the Lord denounced and destroyed his works. It was to preserve him and to restore him. So verse 11 says we ought to be glad. We have to rejoice in God's judgments. Whatever the threat is, internal or external, God is zealous to preserve the ministry of his grace. That's where his focus lies. To have that available so that the meek who come to him will always have his grace available. So now we come to our last point, and that is our response. We've got God's church praising God for defense, making the church the joy of the whole earth. And we have the church's God who in the fullness of his love is committed to defending the church because the church is the means by which he has chosen to bring life to fallen mankind. But now we receive some instructions in verse 12. Walk around Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider her ramparts, go through her citadels. Well, the psalmist has already led us through this, hasn't he? Now it's our turn. Do your own considering. Well, that's a little difficult. We no longer have those physical defenses. So we're going to start by borrowing a time machine. We're going to look back at Jerusalem's history. What do we see? Jerusalem's fortifications, they went up and down as their faithfulness to God went up and down. God did allow inroads when his people turned from him. He showed forsaking him has consequences. But even though this happened, God always preserved a remnant. He promised there would be a remnant. He defended his gospel. But in the course of time, what happened? Jesus came in the flesh. The temple in the flesh. The gospel in the flesh. And the ultimate turning away from God came when Israel, faced with their Savior, turned away from him and rejected him. And Jesus said, 
Not one stone's going to be left upon another in this temple because of this. And congregation understand, the Lord also rejected the temple in the flesh on the cross. He judged him so that there could be life for sinners. But that was a great turning point. There are no more physical walls. This underlines the point here made in this psalm in verse 3. God's made himself known as a fortress. These things, Mount Zion, all of that, this military stronghold, these are just details. God is the defender. In verse 14, the same conclusion. This is God, and this God will lead us. He's not merely a defense. He's at the same time a shepherd. A shepherd protects his flock. He defends his flock, and he leads his flock to places that are good and safe for them. In the midst of the wilderness of this world, Jesus promised that he would send the Spirit and that that Spirit would lead us into all truth in John 16. And so the Spirit has come. He's come to speak of Christ. He's come to build the church. And it's not on Mount Zion. It's not with walls made by hands. This is the church whose center is in heaven. It's built by God himself. And so the church has a different perspective now. And it's not concerning itself with the glorious days of uh, Jehoshaphat's victories because there are greater glories now as well. Because the Spirit himself lives with us personally. He shows us the glory of God. He gives us access to God through Christ who allows us to look on his glory, who changes us into his image from glory to glory. The Spirit leads us into our defense. He leads us to go to our high priest, Jesus Christ, when we are in a time of need, so we can be forgiven, so that Satan will not be given an advantage over us. The Spirit leads us to pray. As Jehoshaphat prayed, when he faced an enemy, the Spirit helps us in our prayers, Romans 8 says, so that we can resist temptation and repulse our great enemy, Satan. The Spirit leads us in the way of righteousness so we can win the battle against our own sin. The Spirit helps us. He put us in a safe place. He sets people to protect us, to watch over our souls, people to remind us with the word and with the sacraments, to set our hope in Christ, to keep looking to our refuge. And so, in many ways, the Lord leads us. He will guide us forever, as verse 14 says, And that guiding is a, is a defense for us. So we live in this church where the walls are not visible. 
But that is not the important point. When Israel was to consider her ramparts, her citadels, her towers, they were supposed to be able to see something invisible. They were supposed to be able to see God with the eyes of faith. And now, today, when we look at what the Lord does, the spiritual victories in the church today, we also are supposed to see God. These are the things we should be able to identify, point out to our children the work of God in the church today. So the church is led by the Lord today to experience victories every day that are greater than the victories of Jehoshaphat. Are you singing, great is the Lord, greatly to be praised wherever you go? Is this a song that follows you when you go home, when you go to work, when you go to the park, when you go to the gym, when you go to the restaurant, when you go to your vacation destination? Maybe not. Maybe not always. Maybe you want to serve Christ. Maybe you want to follow the lead of his spirit, but things happen in a way and you haven't done so as you ought. Maybe you haven't even wanted to as much as you ought. Maybe you've even resisted the spirit. Aren't you glad that the Lord defends the gospel so that today there can be good news for you? Through all these ages, the Lord has been zealous to defend the ministry of his grace so that again today, you could be told there is mercy, there is grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. His blood fully atones the sins of all who believe in him. He washes you clean in his blood. There is grace for all who turn from their sin to him. Aren't you glad that you have this gospel? Aren't you glad that the Lord preserves his church, that he defends it against all comers? So congregation, when you hear that, when you know the cost at which this has come to you, don't treat it lightly. This comes at great cost. You have good news. There's an offer to you. Take the offer. Use it. Make this your reality. It's as real and as freeing as Jerusalem's deliverance by the Lord from threatening armies. Here it is. Take it. It's for you. The Lord has preserved it so that you today can hear it again and answer the Lord again. Lord, I've sinned, but you're a great Savior. Be merciful to me, and he will. And with that deliverance, go into your life wanting others here and everywhere to share in your joy because this is the joy 
that makes you go. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are great. You are greatly to be praised. And your mercy is unmatched as you come to sinners in need of grace again. And you provide for them. How richly you have provided in your son. How thankful we are to have a shepherd who leads us, who is our guide forever. Lord, let us not put our trust in man. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of the heavens and the earth. Lord, we look to you, and our eyes are upon you. We see the rest of our life stretching out before us as well, with many threats to us, with many uh, possibilities of being sidetracked and turned away. Our hope is in you. Lord, we look to you. We ask that you would be our great defender and that you would be a great defender of the gospel in the church. Continue to keep the gospel alive, keep its ministry thriving in this age so that many, many people will hear to the ends of the earth and come and bow before you and also give you praise. We ask for 